0: Rush, stop moving the fing robots! welcome to the top order podcast we're gonna talk all things ashes i'm a bit happy at the moment because we've just recorded an intro that had a mild level of amusement but we're gonna get to the misery of england's performance down under baldy resplendent in his green and gold and lippy and raj laughing at me openly on the way up to the podcast this evening all coming up on the top Order podcast ashes recap stay tuned Bordy, I've got to open with you, mate. What are your feelings after... What is a comprehensive victory, really, for
1: Australia? Uh, relief, really. One that I was wrong in terms of my 2-2 series prediction and that you guys were all right. So that that's a bit of relief. Australia played some pretty good cricket, but they were made to look really good. I think... If you have a look at, the, at of the balance of the series in total, Australia were made to look good by an England side that came to Australia and underperformed in the similar way to the way that New Zealand underperformed in Australia a couple of years ago. Hey, hey, hey. Let's not make this about New Zealand. I'm not. The, <laughs> fa- the fact of the matter is that, New Ze- uh, that England were really, really poor in Australia and they made Australia look a lot better they, than they were, particularly in the batting stakes. A lot of the Australian players have played pretty good cricket over the course of the summer. Pat Cummins' captaincy was excellent. We'll get onto the coaching. We'll get onto a number of different elements of the performance. But all in all, I'm pretty relieved that Australia put a reasonable performance on the cricket field and came away with another 4-0 series victory over an England side that is is really has been pretty poor.
2: Uh, I'll just jump in to say maybe you guys were right. The last week I was trying to make the case that England were not that bad. Maybe they were pretty bad.
0: Guys, before we get into the post-mortem from an English perspective and the the aftermath from an Australian perspective and, and celebrations for for you two for Rajan and Stu have England got any excuses when it comes to the preparation that, that or lack thereof the COVID situation that they found themselves in and some of the sort of off the field stuff that was going on or have they not really got a leg to stand on in terms of that and it's just poor preparation get on with it
3: the reason I'd say no is because they didn't really improve throughout the series at all. Um, from a preparation perspective, I don't think that's a that's a that's a viable excuse anymore. Uh, you've seen with Bangladesh coming to New Zealand, they went through the same quarantine procedures and they were upset about it at the time. Um, and yeah, they, and
2: they, they mentioned that some of their players didn't want to be there; they wanted to go home.
3: And that, that's why Shakib didn't, didn't come. He didn't want to come and do quarantine, which is his prerogative. So um, I don't think that's an excuse, uh, you know, from a preparation perspective. I think what's
2: picking up on that. It. I think it's worth mentioning, though, that. England have been talking for what eighteen months or so that everything was building towards this Ashes, and I know you can't predict COVID and, and all of the other things that were going on, but I think that they may have been let down a little bit by not necessarily the having to come here and quarantine and doing all of that stuff. I would say probably in something that you mentioned last week, Binksy, about how. They just play so much test cricket and they haven't been able, they've had these problems, these middle order batting problems, top order batting problems for ages. Yeah, batting problems in general <laughs> for, for a long time. This is not a new thing. And there's been no opportunity for any of these players to go back to first class cricket, work on their games to, you know, put a, a good core of international level cricketers into their first class cricket and test the other players at the second tier level um, and test them them against the Jimmy Andersons and Stuart Broads, and see how they would go. So I, I think there's perhaps some you know some problems there that they need to look at.
1: You mentioned you mentioned sort of disappointment. Were you let down as a fan, as a neutral fan of this series, by the outcome and the way that it played out? I think so. I mean, you know, you want to see
2: you know you want to see every series. Uh, that you kind of don't have a vested interest in the, the outcome. You want to see them all be close. I mean, that South Africa India series that we just talked about on our last podcast, I mean, that was great from a neutral perspective because mm. you went into every, I don't know, they all went to the last day of the test, but you went into the kind of what you knew was going to be the defining hour or session or, or whatever, close.
1: Uh, both sides could win.
2: Yeah, you, you knew that all, you know, that both sides could go and win and, you just never really thought that at any point. I mean, you know, I was messaging Binksy, trying to keep him upbeat on on that, um, you know, this last test here, sort of saying, you know, do you reckon you know, at one point when England was 60 for, for none and then whatever they were, 80 for one or whatever, there was, I think Bet365 had
1: them about even money to, to chase down. Crickviz had them at 52% to win that test match yeah, at one yeah. point. Yeah,
2: so. um, but, and you know, Binksy was still like, over and under 120 and he was just about right. You know, it was a, it was a pretty good line in the end. And, and that's been the way the whole series, they've just, every time you kind of thought, okay, maybe England have an opportunity now that just collapsed.
3: Yeah. I, I, enjoy watching cricket in Australia. I don't know why it's something programmed into you from when you're, when you're young, but, um, I enjoyed watching the first test match, but, but after that, second test match, after that, it just, it, you just didn't feel like England was ever going to, to, to come, come through in the end. I mean when in that fourth test where they were fighting for this draw, you know, I love watching that sort of stuff, fighting for the draw, but in reality, all, all it's telling me is whether, as I said in the last podcast, they're going to lose four nil or they're going to lose five nil because that's, that that's essentially what, what was going to happen. But um, yeah, I, I, to answer your question, I didn't enjoy the back half of that series because it was not really competitive.
2: Yeah. how, how do you enjoy it, Pinksy?
0: Not, not at all, really, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm brutally honest. And I, I think, the reason I asked the question was just whether or not there's, you know, there's any compelling circumstances. I think Australia, in a way almost by accident have prepared really really well for this series they've not gone anywhere as a test side for the last what 12 18 months or so the likes of uh, Travis Head who was really a question mark as to whether or not he was going to make it into in test cricket has mm-hmm. had the ability to go back into Sheffield sc- Shield and score some runs Usman Kawaja, who was the spare batsman has gone off and made big runs for, same. Uh, for Queensland during the course of the season Cameron Green has got some overs into the legs I think a big first class century for Western Australia um, this year and uh, look I don't know about you the players, um, Boland. Boland um, I know you want to talk about him as an up-and-coming pick at some point. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Get him on the report. So you heard it here first, top of the podcast, Scott Boland, write the name down.
0: So, so look, but I don't think that that sort of says that, you know, they had that benefit more really than, than England did in terms of it having an impact on the series. The, the series was decided by the fact that if you look at a composite 11 of the two teams, I don't think there's a single Englishman um, that even gets into the, the match day 13, is there? Um, I, I know someone's going to say Mark Wood and that's fine, but, you know, I, I still think that... I'm taking Stark, I'm taking Cummins, I'm taking Boland, I'm probably taking Joe Richardson. Um, I'll probably even have a
2: little bit of Michael Nisa ahead of those guys. So um, yeah, I think look- you're being harsh on Wood if you're picking Neeser and, and Richardson ahead of him. I, I think, you know, I guess if we want to try and be on the positive side, Wood is someone who certainly came out of this tour with, with his head much higher than uh, than it might have been before. Mm. And, and there's not many on this tour that did that. I mean, you maybe you could say though after his performance as well, but mm. you know, I mean, you you and I were having a back and forth in that second test around whether they should have picked Wood. And and I stand by that, that he should have played. I mean, he should have played every game on that, on that tour. I mean, they're very unfortunate that Archer was not on that tour. They're very, un, you know, I know that Mark Wood has been someone who's had injury problems his whole career and, and struggled to play but I think if they were serious about winning that that series and and putting their best foot forward at the start of that tour you had to just pick him because he was someone that was showing that he could he could kind of foot it in the way that Neil Wagner did when when New Zealand was over there if you want to bring that comparison back in other bowlers didn't look as as threatening but Wagner in the same way that Wood did said I'm going to come at you and, and I've got it to fit it with you at
1: this level.
3: Wagner's so good, isn't he? Oh, I love good.
1: how we've got Wagner into this um, podcast in the first the, eight minutes.
3: I'm glad you mentioned that Ma- that Mark Wood uh, selection issue there because I think um, that, along with a lot of other selections, or a few other selections, is where there's a, there's a bit of an issue for me and it's around that word rotation and things like p- not picking Jimmy Anderson for that very first test match on a green wicket had been raining for a month, uh, Anderson and Broad, uh, and not not picking them uh, for first match of the series. I feel like when a uh, series is still live, you've got to play your best eleven at any point in time.
0: Yeah. So look. I- I just want to, I've kind of written some notes for this because I wanted to be um, try and take the emotion out of it and not just go off on a big rant. So I think from a short-term perspective, I think we can talk about this all we want as an England side at the moment. The cricketers that we had in the country are about the 16 or 17 best cricketers that we've got available. There's some arguments that, you know, Joffre uh, Archer is not available yet, of course he would play. Um, but then you're kind of clutching at straws to say, you know, is James Vince a better option than uh, David Milan? is um i don't know adam lie the better option uh, at the top of the order than rory burns but there's not too many question marks around the personnel that we had in the country so i would suggest our squad to tour the west indies unless we get some retirements is going to be broadly similar but you mentioned it earlier on we talked about the planning for this the rhetoric in the lead up to it was really annoying me australia i don't think have lost a pink ball test match ever yeah no. We were kind of talking up the fact that we wanted two of them because Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad would absolutely lap it up and then we don't even play them in those games. (laughs) But to your point, the planning, the selection and the analytics used to make those decisions, I don't know who's responsible for them. Ashley Giles, as managing director of England Cricket, was very clear when he appointed Silverwood into this new role as head of whatever it is. I don't know what his name is, head coach. He, The buck stopped with him. He was responsible so I'd like to know what Joe Root's input was, because if he was the bystander that was told, this is your 11, off you go, and then perhaps he gets a stay of execution from a captaincy perspective. If he was culpable in those decisions and he made those calls either in conjunction with Silverwood um, or of his own volition, then he's got to go. Because to not play 1150 test wickets on a green top in Brisbane, as you say, when it's completely a live series, is absolutely ludicrous. I don't agree that Mark Wood should have necessarily played in that test match. And um, I think if you look at the bowling averages, four England bowlers averaged under 25. That's pretty good. Yeah, that the wasn't that the Poland problem. bowling average under 0. 0.25 is probably the problem <laughs> that we'll come on to. Um, but the planning and, and the identification of how they were going to get into that series, it was a freaking spreadsheet rather than the data informing a decision that should have been made leading up to the match days, and they got selections all the way wrong. Um, just just
3: I, to back you up a little bit there, Binksy, one, one of the most criminal things I think was in that first test, seeing England won the toss and chose to bat on a pitch that hadn't seen sun the for NASA two, three effect. weeks.
0: They didn't want to make the same mistakes that NASA Hussain made back in what was it, two thousand three? Yep.
3: But it's it's captain it's, it's captaining or making decisions based on that rather than what they're actually seeing in front of them. Correct. So I completely agree with you. On you go.
0: So I I guess that's all I've got to say um, on that matter, other than to throw um, Mo Bobat under the bus as well. So he's the player identification and pathways manager. So again, a massive trick missed. They've got the England Lions there. Not only do they send them home, which necessitates calling someone up from the big bash to drive 900 miles to play in a test match, but they didn't utilize that as an opportunity to give some of the squad players a game Um, when they were getting drubbed in in Brisbane. So then Crawley comes in completely cold into the Melbourne Test match. And the only player that played from the squad that was named for the Ashes was Don Bess. So what was the point? Um, And as a spinner, like if I was Jack Leach, look, I don't think he's good enough is that is the is the bottom line but as a spinner, how destroying must that be that they pick you on the wicket that they shouldn't have picked you on you get absolutely marmalised and put through a wood chipper um, and then you get asked to come and play in in another test match um a little bit later in the series when your confidence is destroyed and and clearly you're not trusted by the the selectors and your captain
2: well, I think I think that's it right that they it, it feels like Yes, the players haven't performed, and and you know there's no getting past that. And I don't I don't think they would shy away from that. Jo- Joe Root has has for for his part said that as as much as well that you know the players have to be accountable for their performances and that they haven't done a good enough job. But I completely agree. I don't think they've been put in positions to perform. You know, you mentioned Leach there. The spin has just been—I don't know—the way that, like, the way they've treated Bess, the way they have treated Moen Ali, the way they've treated Jack Leach. Now, it—it it feels like they're just, you know, building them up to fail, really, and so that they can move on to to someone else. And it just doesn't make doesn't make a lot of sense to me and what the decisions they're making. And someone's got to be held accountable for that. I think
1: absolutely. I mean, we could talk about the analytics and the selection policy all night. If, if we had if we had the option to, if this podcast could be as long as it needed to be, we would still be here at 5.30, 6.30 <laughs> in the morning and the police would be coming to my door and saying, Baldy, it's time to go inside and time to go to bed. Look, if you had asked David Warner who would you least like to face on the first day of the first test at the Gabba, he would have said Stuart Broad. He still has nightmares about Stuart Broad. Stuart Broad played, what, the last two tests? Dismissed Warner seven times in two tests. <laughs> David Warner averaged like eight in the last two tests of the series where, where where Stuart Broad played, he still has nightmares and will have nightmares as long as he lives about Stuart Broad. The the fact that he was not anywhere near the first test side is, is incredible to me. Let's have a look at the stats for Stuart Broad in this test match, uh, in this test series. only played three games, took 13 wickets at an average of 26. So not brilliant, but still really, really good. James Anderson, the greatest fast bowler of all time. You heard it here first. Put him in your little black book and write his name down. I'm not
2: so sure about that. Only
1: played on. only played three test matches in the most important Ashes series ever, as far as England are concerned. Eight wickets at 23. I'm pretty sure that they're the two best averages of the New Zealand bowlers, of the England bowlers, it's should just I say. Robinson slightly better. Was Robinson average better than that?
0: Yeah, he was, yeah. Ollie, but uh, it, Robinson it, it, 25 n- and a half. Okay. Makes no difference. And... With all due respect, Chris Wokes played the same amount of tests as James Anderson. Jack Leach played the same amount of tests as James Anderson, as a bowler. I, I just don't get it. I just don't get how you've got um, Ollie Robinson, as good as he is, has played four games and was short of a gallop. Like yep. seriously, paces were down. was obviously
2: struggling. Um, yeah, so, by the first te- by the end of the first test, he looked like he was he was
1: cooked. So will t- tell you this. I tell you this. If you're Australia, who would you least likely who would you least want to face in Brisbane where it's going to seem around, in Adelaide where it's going to do something? They're the first two tests of the series, the live test matches. Who would you least likely to face?
3: The West Indies of the 80s.
1: Yeah, well, that that and then... <laughs> Richard Hadley at both ends. Yeah, and then Broad and Anderson in that order, right? The West Indies, Richard Hadley from both ends, and then Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad in that order, right? So, so I mean, I guess what all this
2: amounts to is... Is Silverwood gone? Is that is it as simple as that? He's Has gone to be. immediately. Has to be.
3: Well, I've got another question here. We, we've talked about the bowlers a lot and not selecting them. The numbers you mentioned are, are okay. Tactics selection—that's not helping the batsmen that are actually there, and they're not scoring runs.
0: Oh, the, the bowling for me. The, the the selection is the mismanagement here, not the actual cattle the, the that was available. The bowling fine. The yeah. bowlers, other
1: than maybe wokes, actually perform and, reasonably and, well. And
0: leach, and there's a there's a spin problem, and that's part of Binksy's blueprint for fixing English cricket. Okay, well, we'll get to that. Yeah, and um, but but batting wise, wise you, what do you have a question before I go off on a massive rant?
3: Oh, <laughs> well, my, my issue is that
0: my rant will be the same regardless of the question.
3: <laughs> well, my issue is, is is not necessarily, you know. None of them are doing well, and and there's, there's, apart from maybe Crawley is probably and besto have made themselves you know sh- showered themselves the problem, in sunshine. Isn't it but right
2: that all of these guys they come in and they show some glimmers, and and that's what they've been doing for eighteen months. They come in and show this glimmer of of hope. I mean Zach Crawley scored that double hundred, and everyone went, including us, went look, he's a, a guy that looks like someone that could be really good at test level for a long time, and, and then it just never happened. Now he's done, you know, shown those glimmers again, but how long is that going to last? Yeah, look, again, I think the problem
0: is there isn't anybody that's going to immediately follow these guys. So to an extent, they're going to have to pick some people that they're going to invest in. And I think the problem is it's probably just too cozy an environment. You know, there's Chris Silverwood, really nice guy. Joe Root, really nice guy. but uh, You know, a lot of time for him. The way he speaks to the media is relatively open and honest. The backroom staff, Collingwood, Thorpe, et cetera, yeah, they need to get a little bit of firing. You know, we, we might talk about it a little bit with Justin Langer, um, an abrasive character by all accounts. Um, I think he's going to be safe now, um, but we'll come on to that. But England need that. And the only way they're going to get that, I think, is an external appointment for, for that head coach role. And I think it will need to be split coaching roles again, because who's going to come and... Um, coach England for 344 days a year and get 20 days off when you can go and make the same money doing a season of IPL. So if we want to attract, you know, the likes of a Trevor Bayliss again or a a Gary Gary Kirsten, Kirsten, um, then, you know, we're going to have to, you know, put something together that's tremendously attractive. Root for me, still class. Um, Showed that through portions of this test series. I don't think you can actually probably underestimate how much the off the field stuff It's got to get to him at some point. He's been holding that side together for the last couple of years with the bat and David Milan, again, I think he's got some extenuating circumstances. His wife gave birth to a baby six weeks earlier um, than normal during the course of the series. You know, he's missed the, the the birth of his first child. That must have been playing on his mind in, in those sort of managed isolation mm-hmm. um, sort of environments. And Crawley, I think, yeah, showed a little bit of promise. And we've talked about the fact that Moeen Ali has been messed around, Don Bess has been messed around. What about Johnny Best? They're averaging 40 with the gloves and get some ripped off him from a guy who scored two centuries in 52 test matches. Um, and and then you know, come, you know, has gone home um, from the, from this series. Obviously, with the, you know an injury that may have actually ended his, his test career.
1: I, I actually went through an exercise after the after the last test, and I went through top to bottom. And unfortunately, Shane Warne prompted it in my head, and I went, actually, how many of these England players have enhanced like enhanced their reputation as test cricketers or or pushed. In, in you know in blackjack parlance have they have we got a push you know is it 20 versus 20 joe root was a push in this series didn't score hundred in Australia and but we're judging him by Joe Root 2021 standards where he scored hundreds for fun so you know you have to kind of say Joe Root is a push in that he didn't win a test and he and he didn't you know score a century. I think Zach Crawley enhanced his reputation he came in with those last two test matches, scored a 70 off hundred balls looked like a test cricketer, looked like he could open the batting for England. I think he's actually, his best option is at number three for England moving forward. I think they've still got to find two opening batters. Um, unfortunately, bold predictions came true. Haseeb Ami got found out in Australia, unfortunately. I like him as a test cricketer. Yeah, his low hands, eh? But low hands, unfortunately, got found out by the bounce in Australia. He couldn't score either. And he did, and, he, and, he, and like Dom Sibley, which is, a, which is a fundamental problem in a
0: game where runs are the currency. <laughs> runs of the
1: currency. And, but he had the same problem as Dom Sibley. He couldn't rotate the striking and, and get off strike and get down the other end. Rory Burns, unfortunately, was dropped and then came back. You know, I, I'll let you guys decide whether or not he enhanced his reputation or not. Well, no. I don't I don't know how he could have enhanced his reputation. He didn't do very well. His, his hair looked lustrous <laughs> in the final <laughs> test. The final test might have been the making it, of
3: it. To be fair, he looked all at sea throughout the whole series. Um, Against
1: Mitchell Stark in particular, right?
3: But point to someone who who didn't, apart from those people you have just there's a lot of batsmen in that English lineup. Yeah. There's a lot of batsmen in a lot of lineups that have gone to Australia. And there's overlooked.
1: a lot of batsmen in the Australian lineups that looked at see at various times I, in the series as well. I think
3: Milan looks all right in the first couple of yep. test matches. He's, is he a pusher or is he a enhancement? Who's that? Milan.
1: Milan by your scale. If you if he only played the first three test matches, I'd say he's at least a push, if not if not better. But I think in the back end of the series, he fell away a bit, as all the England guys did. And I think the problem with that is that uh, those guys, that it felt like they almost gave up to a certain extent, right? Other than Johnny Bairstow in that fourth test where he made 100, I think he enhanced his reputation again as a test cricketer. I think Oli Pope did not. Olly Pope, again, as you say, Stuart, glimmers of promise. Absolute glimmers of promise. He's like fool's gold, Ollie Pope. Scores runs for fun in county cricket, you know? But you get him to test level and, he's, and he just oozes, oozes promise, but just doesn't convert that into big scores. Whereas Johnny Bairstow, I, I love Johnny Bairstow. He's one of my favorite test cricketers. He's one of my favorite international cricketers, but he just finds a way to to scrap and grit and noodle and nudge and and work his way into the contest. And you feel, feel like with Johnny Bairstow, the harder it is, the better he plays. And I just think that without getting too emotional about it, because I can feel myself getting emotional now, Johnny Bairstow is the kind of cricketer that England need to take them forward, even if he's, he's too old, in inverted commas, or not promising enough or whatever. He's the kind of guy that that side needs to hold them together a little bit in that middle order because unless Joe Root and Ben Stokes scores all the runs, there's not really much else going on for England in terms of, in terms of that ability to kind of nugget out a tough 250 on an uneven deck. I think there's a lot of those guys in the England side when the going is good could make a lot of runs. But when it's tough, I want Johnny Bairstow on my side every day of the week. It's it's pretty
2: grim. And I mean, look, I I, I do want to at some point move to Australia because I think there's a few talking points there. But but Binksy, I mean, while we're on England, you said you've got this blueprint for, for change. What, what what are your ideas and what do you think actually England can do just given the the schedule that they sort of build themselves and there's just so much cricket going on? for them
0: yeah so look i I guess this always happens after an ashes series one way or the other like if you look back over the last you know 20 years every time australia have lost you've said things like we need to play with the duke ball in australia um so that we can get used to it we need to send our players over to play a bit of county cricket so they can get used to playing on those pitches Every time we lose, we go, let's look at the Australian Cricket Academy and copy that, and we should play with a kookaburra, um, and we need to play on harder, flatter pitches. So we're just going to repeat that cycle over and over again. But I think that this is just such a catastrophic implosion that England need to do something radical. Now, they're not going to be able to, because unfortunately, the way the English game runs is that the counties have to vote for it, and Turkeys do not vote for Christmas. So they are not going to... They are not. <laughs> They are not going to vote for changing the way that their revenue structure works. And their revenue structure is built around the T20 Blast, which is the the white ball tournament. Um, and now the handout that they get from uh, the 100 tournament. So I think they can only go so far. But what I think that they need to do, and I think whether this is what they end up doing, but this is what I've got on my blueprint, is I think they've got to keep the 100 Um whether they change it to a t20 competition rather than a 100 ball competition it doesn't really matter but we need that franchise uh, we need that franchise tournament i think we've got to play 50 over cricket because it's a format that's played so we need a 50 over competition that for me means that the t20 blast needs to disappear because you can't play two 2020 competitions in the same um, in the same country in the same year and then the fact that and this is genuine so let's consider this for a second the equivalent of this would be New Zealand playing first-class cricket, all their first-class cricket in August. Okay, so that that's when the English season starts. If you reverse the seasons, it would start in August, and it would finish in May. May. Yeah, well, so, that wouldn't go so well. So that is what England are faced with at the moment. And they're playing county cricket, the Bob Willis final this year. So the um, the sort of minor. Um, COVID sort of competition that they they put in place was played in October. And so for me, what they need to do, the 50 over competition, and um, I think you bash that at the start of the season and it gets everybody playing a bit of cricket. Um, white ball doesn't do as much. Um, you can you can produce pretty flat pitches still, even if they're going to, you know, they're not going to be hard, but they're going to be relatively flat for one day cricket. Um, the England players and the next level down, the Lions players then start to play some four day cricket against touring sides and against other A sides that come over as a lead up for that, uh, for that test cricket. And um, so they're playing some kind of representative cricket under the banner of an England 11 or an A11 um, during, uh, during May, uh, maybe early June. And that is when the county championship is played, the four-day competition. For me, I'd go three conferences of six. It'll piss a few people off. Um, but I'd go three conferences of six so that they only end up playing um, those six uh, or five uh, teams in their um, in their conference twice. And then there's a final of some sort. So, you, you know, you need to devise some kind of playoff system um, to make that work. And then when the... Tests are really underway in July and August in the middle of the summer, whilst the four-day cricket is providing people to come into that, just like they do with the Big Bash. After the big marquee test series in the middle of the summer, that's when you play your 100 tournament, TV, schools are on holiday, overseas players come in, bish bash bosh, that's how you solve um, English cricket. Um, But the counties aren't going to vote for it um, because they're going to lose their gravy train, which is the which is the t20 blast. Um, So they'll say no, we've got to keep our 600 members who bring their own sandwiches and pay 200 pound a year um, happy, um, rather than um, making the England test team the best that it can be over the course of the next five years.
3: So I've seen a few uh, reports and there's people pulling out of the IPL auctions, etc, of you know, English players not going and playing in the IPL
0: politics, I reckon they needed to do that.
3: There's there's one school of thinking here that, that that could end up being a bit of an overreach so I'm happy in your blueprint you've talked still about playing the other formats of cricket what what do you think is the most important thing for to, to enhance red ball cricket for England or make them better going forward you've talked there about playing in a better time of the year or a more representative of pitches around the world maybe is is that the best way to enhance England's offering of red ball cricket
0: I think you have to. I think you have to play on the best wickets you can possibly play on. And and it means reducing the format. And it means reducing the format. And let's not go on about this for ages and ages. We could do another podcast on this. But part part of the problem as well is the preparation of the grounds as well. There's so much cricket that the groundsman can't actually get on to prepare good enough wickets.
2: I actually think that that, uh, that is a really important. I know I said it before, but they play too much cricket. Like they just play too much cricket, England. It's it's absolutely ridiculous the amount of cricket they play. And if they actually want their players, they're going to bring young players in. Those all of those young players that we've talked about, they've had to learn international at at international cricket. And it just there are only a very select few players that can actually do that. And without actually going back to the county game or the um, the blanket shield or whatever, and getting your 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 game in order, because most players, you know, Devon Conway aside, when they come into international cricket, they have a little, uh, you know, they, they go well for a little while, then they get found out. And then they have to go back and work on their game. And I just don't think England give their players an opportunity to do that. So
0: They play so, they play so much cricket. Baldy will probably have some comparison stats. But you look at someone like Zach Crawley, he's already played 70 first-class games. I Bet you any money, um, that Mark minus hasn't played that many games at, at first class cricket. Okay, he has, he's played 104.
1: <laughs> um, so that but bloke- that's because that's because he went to England and played counter cricket, oh, he played counter cricket for two yeah. seasons.
0: But so you, 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 th- th- there'll be some comparisons there that you can draw. That 70 games is a bloody Sheffield Shield career for most guys that mm-hmm. play test cricket mm-hmm. because they they play their shield games, they get in the Australian side and they stay there and then they. If they're lucky, they might play three, four Shield games a year when their commitments allow, mm-hmm. um, because they're in that Australian side and they don't play that much first. But they, first, play,
1: they play their Shield games before the Test matches start. Yeah. Like they play their Shield games in October, November, and the wickets are still reasonably well, reasonably good, and they're conducive to batting for long periods of time. The issue that England have, and I hate to say it because I love them, the issue that England have is that Darren Stevens is still a first-class cricketer at 44 and bowling 75 miles an hour, Darren Stevens is still good enough to play county cricket and to to get guys out. Unless the wickets are good enough and fast enough and, and bouncy enough that Darren Stevens would get destroyed by good county players the issue is still going to be that England can't produce good test match batters because they can't bat for long enough in those conditions. Because a guy like Darren Stevens could come in and bowl 75 miles an hour as much as I love the guy, and I hope to have him on the podcast one day because he's a tremendous, tremendous cricketer. But if he's able to still get guys out bowling 75 miles an hour at 44 years of age, there is something wrong with the preparation of that competition because it is not producing test cricketers that can bat for long, long periods of time unless they play at the Oval.
0: And, and the quick build on that body is that also means that as a batter in English cricket, what you need to do is get to 30 as quickly as you can. And that's how these guys are building their careers. You know, they, they keep their contract based on the fact that they average 30 on a seeming wicket and, and, and then they don't have to bat for two days. And as much as I hate to say, the, the other Australian component here is you wait a long time in between your bats. So you've really got to make it count in Australia, whether you're playing grade cricket, if you get a blob on a Saturday, you might not bat for another month in grade cricket. Um, and it's the and it's the same uh, same in the Sheffield Shield as well.
3: Well, you'll be happy on the text machine. We've actually got a, a. Giles asking for your <laughs> um, email address. He wants to get in touch with you. Some great ideas there. Uh, um, I'll give them
0: sh- to his successor. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, let's move on to to Australia. Uh, Baldy, do you want to lead us in uh, talking about or celebrating Australian cricket? Australian victory. We should just talk
1: about Cameron Green for the next twenty minutes. I think like? we can talk about Cameron Green for a long, long period of time because he is my highlight of the Australian summer. I mean, you you showcased him in your bold predictions coming into the series that in, the, in that he would dominate Ben Stokes with bat and ball. So I'm going to give you your moment in the sun at some point. But if you go back twelve months, Cameron Green was touted as the next big thing. The 21 year old was is six foot seven or whoever tall he is, he seems get taller every year he 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 looked a giant they put him against
2: uh, put him put a photo up of all the batters and if you think about all the other batters in that lineup smith labashane harris kawaja yeah they're they're all short and he looks like an absolute giant giant he's probably still
1: growing at 22 (laughs) into his body but look he has shown everyone in international cricket that he is as good as Everyone, particularly Greg Chappell, thinks that he could be and, and is. And what has delighted me is that he has shown that, despite not taking wickets in the India series, that he is a bowler that can prize out the best batter in the opposition. And he he got Joe Root's number a couple of times. He contributed meaningful contributions with the ball. I know he was criticised in some local circles as not bowling enough overs, but he bowls enough to give the, the prime seam attack and spin attack, another option over 80 or, or 90 overs of cricket in a day, depending on your over rates. Oh, I
2: thought he was hugely he important was, in that series. He uh, was huge. Like, such a valuable bowler in that series because you mentioned it quite a few times that Australia are very new ball dependent. Mm-hmm. And there are a few times where Milan and Root did kind of get through that new yep. ball and, yep. and that patch. And Green would just come in and nip out a wicket when it was really, really important to do so. I mean, even that last test, right? England was going along very nicely,
1: and uh, And, you know, when Green goes bang, 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 right, and that's that's the that's the that's the Flintoff, that's the Botham nature that he like he could be, and I'm not saying he is now, but he could be at that level if he continues to improve and perform over the next, let's say, ten to twelve years of international cricket if he stays fit and in form. He could be that kind of player. I, I, I agree with you, Adam. I think that he is going to turn into a better bowler than he is a batter. He has showed us that he has enough skill with a bat to last in the side. You know, Mitchell Marsh was criticized heavily for not being a good enough batter to bat at six for Australia despite his bowling and now T20 form. But Cameron Green has got enough about him that he could bat at six or seven for Australia and be that fifth scene option. He's a long, long long-term player for Australia. He's the number one good outcome, brilliant outcome from, from both this series and moving forward for me.
2: What, what I, I think will be hugely exciting for, for the Australian team, I I think. And, um, and, you know, the, everyone in the important circles there is there's those runs that he got in those, um, final couple of games, because in the first three tests, he looked, he looked really out of sorts. He, he actually yeah. looked like he was completely out of his depth, which, which was surprising because yeah, I mean, when we, I think when Dan Brettig talked to us about him, he just, you know, raved about what a, what a quality batsman he was. And it looked like in these last couple of games that. I, I suppose it shows what a few runs can do and and what hitting a few out of the middle can do. You know he played that innings where there wasn't a huge amount of pressure. they I know they were in a bit of trouble at that time that in that fourth test or whenever it was, but they he they already had a lead. like if he'd have failed, it wouldn't have been a disaster mm. for Australia. He was able to free his arms, and then in the next game, meaningful runs. He was able to be positive.
1: And, and looked a completely different cricketer. Yeah, meaning, meaningful runs were important for Cameron Green in this series. Regardless of whether or not Australia were on top in those first few tests, Cameron Green at some point needed to contribute with the bat to earn his place in the side and continue to do that. And he has done that, absolutely. I mean, if we p- apply the same metric, if you have a look top to bottom in that Australian side, over the course of the series, who has enhanced that, their reputation, Warner is a push. He was great early on when Stuart Broad didn't bowl around the wicket to him. Stuart Broad bowled around the wicket to him in the last two test matches and he got eight or nine or something, not very many. He had a pair in in the last test in Hobart. Marcus Harris has done Marcus Harris things, looks somewhere between a first class cricketer and a test, and a test cricketer, depending on who you talk to and, and what day of the week it is. But, you know, he scored 79 valuable runs in one test. Got a bunch of starts, but didn't really go on with it. So Australia are just in a holding pattern, hoping that Will Pukowski is fit and and, and isn't suffering from concussion and he'll come into the test side. I think that eventually we'll go to someone like Henry Hunt or Bryce Street as a long-term opening option. Usman Khawaja was a fill-in. I thought he was brilliant, enhanced his reputation. The last time an Australian got 100 in both innings of the test match was R. Ponting in 2006. He was incredible for Australia. He enhanced his reputation. You mean Ricky Ponting was <laughs> was incredible Ricky for Ponting Australia? Was incredible. He was No, Ousmane yeah. <laughs> Karaja was incredible <laughs> for Australia. They, again, tough runs in both innings, yeah. really valuable contributions to that test match. I know that he didn't make runs opening the batting and that everyone would say, and I did, he's got an average of 90 opening the batting. It's a small <laughs> sample size. It's, the only way that can go is down. Um, unless you Scott is, Boland unless you Scott Boland we'll get to him Uh Lava Shane push Smith slightly less than a push I think we're starting to see Smith regress to the mean a little bit in terms of his batting average it's now below 60 I think it'll end up being 53 or 54 by the time he finishes his test career unless he has unless he has some kind of you know 2019 Ashes series where he peels off double hundred after double hundred
2: that's what happened to Ponting wasn't it that he had a very very high whether it was high 50s or 60 or something and then the last mm-hmm. last couple of years of his career it did drop markedly
1: i think i think i think steven smith is is a hand eye player he is he is one of the best if not the best hand eye players i think we've seen in our generation of of cricketers and if that starts to go or teams start to work him out he will go through a lean patch and we're kind of seeing that now a little bit he's gone two out of three home summers without scoring a test century he's kind of dipped below 60 now Like if he retired now, he's got 7,700 runs at 59. He's one of the best batters of all time. But I think we will see him slowly regress to the mean. And if the expectation of Australian cricket fans is that we'll see Steve Smith continue to average 65 in Test test cricket, we're set for a bit of a letdown. If we expect Manus Lubbershane to average 65 in Test cricket, we're set for a bit of a letdown. I think those guys are somewhere in the Lubbershane's 45 to 50 in Test cricket long term. I think Steve Smith's kind of 50 to 53 long term. So those guys are kind of regressing to the mean a little bit. But what's exciting is that Travis Head is now down a spot. Cameron Green is now down a spot. Cummins and Stark, particularly Stark, actually. Stark was impressive in this series because he was not that great against India. And he was criticized for being, you know, a new ball bowler only. And he was terrific with the new ball ball new ball for Australia in this series. What has really impressed me is the emergence of guys that can come into the test side and Fulfill a role or do what's required of them in Test cricket. Michael Kneiser did a good job but will now not be remembered. He might not even play Test cricket again. Yeah, might never play again. Um, You know, he got a wicket within like the third or fourth ball of his Test career and looked like he was going to be awesome. But he's been surpassed by Jai Richardson, who I think at 25 is a long-term option for Australia. And now Scott Boland continues to be successful. I think he will regress to the mean. I mean, the only way that he can go (laughs) is down... Um, Can I ask a
0: provocative his... question? Does Scott Boland play 10 test matches his entire
2: career? Well, it, they've got to pick him for this Pakistan tour, surely.
3: What if Hazelwood's fit?
1: I think I think you're right, Adam. I think there is a chance that Scott Boland plays 10 to 12 test matches. If if Hazelwood, Stark, and Cummins are fit and Nathan Lyon is fit, they're the best four bowlers in Australia. And as long as they're fit, we should be picking those bowlers. Unless you've got green in the side as well. Absolutely and the difference between australia's selection policy and england's selection policy seems to be that if those guys are fit we're going to continue to pick them even though stark's average at the beginning of the test series is 22 and the end of the test series is 50 Australia's selectors have continued to persist with mitchell stark which is which is a really encouraging sign um the challenge that australia are going to have is those guys can't all play and the beauty of it is that they've got three new ball bowlers and Scott Boland, who is a change bowler and can come in at any stage and bang the ball in on the length and extract a half an inch of movement. And that's enough to prize out England's batters. I don't think it's going to be good enough to prize out England, uh, sorry, India in India or Pakistan and Pakistan or Sri Lanka in Sri Lanka necessarily, but he's done enough to deserve to be in those squads and on those planes. Raj.
0: Um- Just before we move on to Raj, I've got a quick positive that I'm going to take from your rant on Scott Boland. Um, England criticised for not having pace. Scott Boland bowled 83 mile an hour the whole series. England can take a lot of solace from the fact um, that that's what he did.
2: And him and and XR Patel can just play in this alternate universe where they're the best players in the world and they're the right and left arm Bradmans of of the game.
3: Uh, Just going back to Hazelwood, essentially... Those Boland wickets were Hazelwood wickets, right? Those he's the same kind of bowler. He's not the you know out and out fast bowler like the Cum- Cummins or Stark of the world. He just bowls good areas and gets wickets, which is what what Boland did. So that that's why I think God, you've, got to pick, you've got to pick Hazelwood if he's fit. But hard to drop Boland. One one thing I do I do want to go down a little bit of a, a, a critique here of the go Australians. For go for it. Have we have has the success really papered over uh, a few of the cracks? And I mean, you can't really say anything about their bowling. Even Lyon bowled really well. Sixteen during, wickets it would have been England's leading wicket taker <laughs> during during the series. I'm talking about the batsmen. So, like, I, I feel like they were missing a superstar or two. And when I say that, I mean that in a volume perspective. We didn't see any massive big daddy hundreds or anything like that. It, it's almost like if England had held on to some catches um, scored a little bit a few more runs that they could have changed quite dramatically mm-hmm. like i don't feel like even though england lost really heavily <laughs> i feel like it's not as heavy as, as as it actually was because australia didn't score no one i don't think anyone scored over 400 runs no, no. And then the betting, you're, you're
2: you're absolutely right. And Travis Head might have got there at three fifty-seven on that at fifty-nine like, if he hadn't have missed out on that game. Yeah. So if so he hadn't
1: have gotten out, he would have. No, if he well, oh. yes, obviously, he also, but, he also but, missed a test match. He missed a test match. Um, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> I think that, as I said to you guys, it whenever you whenever you're successful, um, and, and we will come back to coaching. Whenever you're successful you should never believe all of the good press that's written about you when, you when you're winning, right? When you're riding a winning streak, you're never as good as the press makes you out to be. And when you're losing, you're never as bad as the press makes you out to be as well. You're always somewhere in the middle, right? And despite the fact that Australia have won 4-0, 5, 4-0, 4-0, 5-0, whatever it is in the last three series against England, Australia's cricket team is not as good as these results suggest that they are. And there is still lots and lots of work-ons for that Australian side. Alex Carey was okay. I, I think that he was not brilliant with the gloves and he wasn't brilliant with the bat. Let's have a look at his betting. Where's, where's Carey in this run chart? 183 runs in the series at 20. So if we're talking about him replacing Tim Payne, he's 12, 13 runs short per innings of what Tim Payne has traditionally contributed put, put, to the Australian side.
0: Plus what he's l- lost you on not going for simple catches.
1: Yep,
2: absolutely. So And sitting there, if he's getting charged of that slips, Corden, that's, that's a completely different conversation.
0: Yeah, weird, a, weird look, stuff. Look, you're
1: absolutely right. So there's all of these things that as you're, you're so absolutely right. Shane right, Warne no, and Mark Waugh are in charge
0: of it now yep. for, from the Fox commentary box.
1: So they're right. There are a lot of things that have been papered over.
3: And I did want to finish just on a positive, and it was, it was around Pat Cummins and his leadership. Um, I think it's a hard one because, as we've talked about, he hasn't really been tested, I don't think, in this series. But there's little things there that you can see where he's not a captain that goes out there and, and sort of tells you what to do. He, he puts you on his back and he drags you to where you need to go. And I think that that's something that's, that's really special from a, from a playing group sort of perspective. What do you guys make of his first series as, as skipper, apart from the eating out? Problem that he had when he um, went and had restaurant at that uh, dinner at that restaurant with COVID. Anyway, the um,
2: there's been there was some I did see some criticism of the declaration. Uh, you know, and that was kind of the, I guess the the one decision he had to make. But I would push back on that and say, you know, you'd back yourself to to bowl England out. Certainly, the way they've been bowling. But in in general, I think you'd bowl back yourself to have a day at a team. On the fifth, you know, the fourth innings of a game, and, and and win the game, and look, they couldn't, they didn't do it in the end, and and credit to probably Beeston for for the fact that they didn't do it, but yeah, I I think more for for Australian cricket is Pat Cummins is someone that it appears the public uh, completely want to get behind, and and even worldwide, I think he seems to be someone who's kind of universally loved, and and I think that that's that that's can only be a good thing as long as he's doing the the job on the field didn't seem to affect his bowling he's still world class bowler he you, you can't argue with the results it's pretty impressive stuff
0: yeah look i've been really impressed with him i suppose as long as he doesn't exceed his data cap on his mobile he'll be fine
2: <laughs> on on leadership though i mean you touched on the coaching before if a new zealand coach had just won an emphatic test series like that, just brought home some silverware with the T20 World Cup, they could, they could just sign their next con. They could write their own contract themselves. Mm. What, why, I know, you know, I know six months ago there was all the stuff about Langer and the player players weren't really getting on with them. He was pushing their buttons. Do you think any of that has turned around? Do you, you know, there, there still seems to be talk that he might be gone sort of even before this Pakistan tour. So this is a question for Baldy, but let me just add to that.
0: So Pat Cummings comments not that long ago were let's wait until his contract's up and then we'll have a conversation about it. Yeah. But in the aftermath of this test match, that vernacular's changed has changed to, a little bit. Yeah, I think he even said, I love JL. Yep. Yeah. So
1: yeah, what's going on there, Michael? The narrative has changed and it's changed subtly at the end of this test series. All the way up until the end of this test series, it was let's wait and see. Let's see what happens. We'll do a review at the end of the summer and all that kind of stuff. And it smelled a little bit of player power. And I think you, in terms of coaches, right, you're either in the camp of the coach drives you to the ground. You're in the Shane Warne camp and the coach is largely meaningless. And Or, or the coach is an integral part of the team and, and he sets the standard and, and he drives the team and, and he is the Sir Alex Ferguson Man manager type of coach, or he's the um, he's the very hands on X's and O's type of guy who is is really into the detail and the minutiae of how you're going to play your cricket or how you're going to play your sport. And he's that real detail guy, that Bill Belichick kind of guy, that that real X's and O's kind of guy. And Justin Langer hasn't fulfilled the he drives you to the ground mentality because player, player power has changed and that's not the kind of coach that they, that they want anymore. It's much more of the Sir Alex Ferguson and maybe Sir Alex Ferguson is a bad example, but that man-manager who the players can all get behind and he has the dressing room kind of mentality. Justin Langer is very much an X's and O's guy. He is a minutiae, detail-oriented, intense character who, ironically, having not been successful at test level, uh, sorry, at ODI level, particularly as a player, I think is much more suited to the minutia and the data driven and the like the the real low level low granular decisions of t20 and one day cricket i think he's actually more suited to coaching australia's white ball sides than he is coaching a test side where you're actually maybe a little bit better off putting players in positions to succeed and giving them the opportunity to go out and do their best work Um, i think we've seen with the england coaching situation that too much analytics in the test game is actually detrimental to performance. And if if Justin Langer's mentality, and to be fair to Justin Langer, he has changed his approach pretty significantly by all reports over the last eight months or so. But if you had to have a look at his coaching style, I think he's actually better suited to one-day cricket where it's all about data and individual decisions as opposed to maybe someone like Darren Lehman or Andrew McDonald or someone like that who's more of a people-type person who can get the players around him, as Pat Cummins has done, and and create a culture of these are the guys and I'm just kind of facilitating their performance. So I, I actually think that Australia, as England should, should split their coaching up between red ball and white ball. And I think if we did that, that Justin Langer might be a more successful white ball coach than red ball coach. Um, not that he hasn't done a bad job. If all you did is measure him on whether or not he has achieved performance on the field. there's no question. He could write his own ticket and and he should continue to be Australia's coach. Actually, I think from his legacy point of view, he probably should step aside from something at some point in the next 12 months or so. Because otherwise, as Darren Lehman pointed out in one of his interviews, you start to kind of expire in terms of players stop listening to you after a while. Um, and so unless there's a lot of turnover of players as you tend to have with football a little bit players come and go from squads and it's a lot bigger i think that justin langer will will have players start to tune out from him at some point and i think it's probably about the time that he's peaked as a coach and time to step aside from one format or the other
3: so the question was is he about to lose his job no but i
1: think but i think he should make a decision about what's most important to him and and give one of the formats up. And I think he potentially w- would be more successful giving up test cricket to Andrew McDonald or someone like that, and then continuing as the white ball coach of Australia, where I think he'll have much more input.
0: The, the other factor is that he was what you needed in the aftermath of Cape Town. hundred percent. And the captain in Australian cricket often runs the side as the figurehead. You mm-hmm. probably needed your coach to do that for a period of time. Absolutely. With a captain that kind of improved that kind of cultural thing. Um, and was learning peri- as he went for a period of time you've now got someone in Pat Cummins who reminds me of a, a Mark Taylor like character um, in terms of his demeanour and the way he's going to bring guys with him um, and, and maybe that means that you know I'm not saying Langer can't evolve but it, it's probably an evolution of that journey yeah. of Australian
1: cricket and he could go out on a high right now right and he could go out as a World Cup winning coach T20 World Cup no one's ever done it from an Australian point of view He's won an Ashes series pretty emphatically. That would be a pretty good way for him to go, actually, I'm going to choose what I'm going to do next.
2: And before we finish kind of recapping our, our own bold predictions, I'm gonna make another bold prediction. I think he's gone. I, I just feel like that's the, the thing that's happening. Um, I don't you know I don't think he necessarily should, um, certainly not on results and that's all I can judge him on, um, you know, as someone who's not in the camp. But yeah, I just I just think you know the 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 pieces that I read um, that keep coming out about how he could be gone and you know all the stuff it it suggests that it's coming that that he's not long for this job whether he whether it's going to happen in the next week or month mm. I you know maybe not but it doesn't feel like he's going to be here for long
1: and that's kind of sad because he's achieved results that no other Australian coach has achieved in terms of T twenty success and he was asked to change and he did, you know, like, so what are you going to, what are you going to judge the guy on? Are you going to judge him on his on-field success? Australia have got heaps of that. Are you going to judge him on listening to the feedback of his, of his team, the people that he is responsible for leading and adjusting his leadership style to that? He's done that. So if you sack him now, it's almost like, well, we don't really care what you do you are gone anyway, you've lost the dressing room, which will be a tremendous disappointment. I think he's much, he's much better off going, you know what, I'm going to coach one format or the other and give something up and coach that for two years and then, you know, there's a succession plan for Australia cricket after that.
2: To I, I think we have to finish with recapping our bowl predictions because, to be honest, I think this is one of our best jobs ever as a prediction podcast. I mean, we, we're generally terrible, but I think you could make a case that all of us have got pretty close to being being right. I mean, Raj Dawood Milan was your prediction.
1: She was
3: second or third in the, in the England run run charts? It's unfortunate. Not
1: hard. <laughs> yeah, two forty four at twenty four for Dawood Milan.
3: Is that first, second, third? Second
1: after Joe Root. Second. Joe Root had three twenty two at thirty two point two.
2: Yeah, so I think you you know you're essentially saying Dawood Milan is going to be a factor in this series. These are these were bold predictions that were. Not necessarily, you know, the, were, were things that I, I think the easy prediction was Joe Root was going to be the, the leading run, run score. Leading run Where were Just I oh, <laughs> well, think I'm they look, were pretty good, actually.
3: <laughs> I'm looking forward to how you're going to spin uh, B- Binksy's prediction as close. Well,
2: Binksy said that COVID was uh, going to end the tour. COVID certainly played a factor in the tour. We had Pat Cummins ruled out. We had Travis Head ruled out. We had uh, it. Hamper. change of venue yeah we had it change venue we had it hamper uh england's net bowlers and and all of that kind of stuff so coaching I, stuff. yep yep exactly silverwood so so there's a big asterisk on the series is what we're saying well there's definitely there's definitely not i don't think that changes the results in in any way at all uh but you know i, I think that uh you know my minor credit i mean we, we've got to give binksy some level of credit here uh it's been a pretty rough podcast for him <laughs>
1: otherwise 100 he gets he has to get credit because otherwise he'll just be depressed on the way home from from this podcast
2: and and baldy you, you know his uh prediction of everyone getting dropped success
1: mm, three out of three take <laughs> your pick um, i didn't i didn't predict that one of the openers who'd get dropped would come back and play in the series later on i didn't predict that but three out of the four openers getting dropped in the series unfortunately did come to pass and It's a shame for Hasib Hamid because I don't see, other than him making mountains of runs at first-class cricket, him coming back into the England side. And even Rory Burns, unfortunately, you know, he hasn't really done enough to continue to keep his place in the team. The only thing that might save Rory Burns is the lack of other options in the first-class county system, as you pointed out, He needs
3: to score runs. The end of the day, he's yep. not scoring runs. But you almost got David Warner as well for a fourth. He had that injury, that niggle, that scare. So you yep. almost had. Yep, and, and he
1: had a pair. So you know, if the te- had it been a nine-test series, there's every <laughs> chance that David Warner would have been uh, would have been dropped as well. Stu. we have to come to you though. This is the best one, I reckon. This is why he wanted to raise it. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's oh. raised it, he's <laughs> raised it to, to give himself to a bit these.
2: of limelight.
3: <laughs> no, yeah, no, all
2: right. We're going to celebrate success, right? I mean, we absolutely we, we have had some pretty horrible, horrible uh, predictions on Mostly this podcast, by me. but. Oh, look I mean yeah obviously pretty happy with I mean we talked about what Cameron was your Green.
1: predictions too just re, just recap it for us in full
2: that Cameron Green would uh, would have a better average end uh, with bat and ball in this series than than Ben Stokes and uh it was, it was quite comprehensive would you with the ball
1: would you like me to give you the comparison no sure okay. Cameron Green 228 runs at 32.57 Ben Stokes 236 runs but at an average of 23.6
2: yep check check check. Do the bowling. The bowling's with, much more with fun. With the
1: ball. With the ball. Here we go. Ben Stokes, uh, B.A. Stokes, England. He's a long way down the list. Four wickets at an average of 71.5 and mm-hmm. a strike rate of 95.2.
2: Reverse that, and I think Cameron Green's still pretty close. Green, comma C. don't really couldn't bowl in two Test much. Yeah, don't, let, don't let the truth get
0: in the way of a good story. No, no,
1: that's true. But fact to fact, Green, C, <laughs> yeah. full stop, Australia. 13 wickets at an average of 15.76 and a strike rate, wow, 37.2. In the series well done Stuart. You've, if, I, if you've, only
2: ben stokes could have bowled at his own butting lineup
1: well that's true
2: that that would have certainly helped i'm i'm sure I, I think probably the point that i the reason i went for that at the start is i actually sort of just thought that stokes would really struggle in the series and, and not necessarily for his own because of his own uh you know Talent or still. T- no no i think it it was it was an emergency to kind of bring him over it was england saying we need something to go, uh, to give us a boost here because our, our test cricket is not going well and, and he was seen as the saviour. And it just was never going to be, it was never going to happen because one, he, he didn't really, he was coming back from injury. He had, hadn't had been in a mindset to play. I think there was just so many factors that it just wasn't going to work for him. and I, And I think really that's what I was banking on more than, Cameron Green coming out I I would not have predicted him being such a factor with the ball that was that was incredible
0: well that just about wraps up this rather depressing uh, for me episode of the top order podcast we will be back in a couple of weeks to announce the news of Justin Langer's move to the ECB Um, but in the meantime um, good night and God bless from us all here in Auckland see you soon bye bye